0: Good morning, everybody. I want to thank the real Christians for sitting up close to the front. It was really, I thought I was going to have to, you know, yell louder or do something. But a few late, sort of late, but, you know, the best Christians came here and filled in the front. So that's a wonderful way to greet you, isn't it? Um, today which doesn't really feel like it but today is the first Sunday of Advent four Sundays prior to Christmas Day and the Christian calendar has for a long time, centuries recognized those four Sundays as preparatory to and leading up to Christmas. And there are a number of different themes that have always typified those four Sundays. Some follow the prophets in the Old Testament forecasting, foretelling the arrival of Jesus and then you have the the angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields. You have the shepherds then and their testimony of who Jesus is going to um, Bethlehem. Then you have the wise men who come later. Those are four themes. Um, But there's another um, set of themes that we're looking at, want to look at this Advent. Love, hope, joy, and peace now there is a somewhat of a reason for that order as we want to look at it this these four Sundays the love of God precedes everything it's the love of God that foretold the sacrifice of the Son Jesus That inspired hope. The Old Testament is a story of looking toward that day. Palm Sunday in the New Testament is the arrival, Son of David, save us. That's what had been looked for for 1,500 years of the Old Testament writing, but at least 4,000 years from the scene in the Garden of Eden when the fall occurred. So God's love gave us a hope out in the future. The actual arrival of Jesus physically was considered by the angels exceedingly glad tidings of joy. And then, of course, Jesus comes to give peace with God and the peace of God in our hearts. So there's there's our logic for treating these four themes in the order in which uh, we are. So what I want to look at today first is this theme of The love of God. And honestly, um, I hope it isn't a disaster, (laughs) okay? Um, To try to explain the love of God seems on the surface, um, yeah, we can do that. But when we really begin to look at the origin of the love of God and the definition of the love of God, the display of the love of God... It is, it is a deep and sometimes difficult subject. It's like Charles Wesley said in his great hymn, And Can It Be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? We can't plumb the depths of that, really. We can talk in a surface way, I think, of God's love for us, but to really get a handle so that we appreciate it is sometimes difficult. So we'll do our best here. There are several scriptures. You don't need to turn to them. I'll be referring to enough different ones that um, we don't need the Bible today. Um, First of all, the origin of love, God's love, has, we could say, two different ways of looking at the love of God. One, we cannot talk about the love of God without venturing into the real mystery of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. God the Father You can't have love unless you have a subject that's loving and an object to be loved. Does that make any sense? So, there's part of the explanation. We'll never understand the Trinity completely. But there's part of the explanation for the Trinity. God doesn't dwell truly alone. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the bond of love between them that is the basis for fellowship within the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. So there's one way to look at the Trinity. Love then has its origin in the love between the three persons of the Trinity. This is one reason why We rightly say, and it doesn't mean a coldness on God's part, but God doesn't need us. The reason God is totally um, self-sufficient within himself is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit mutually love. So it was a gift that God made us. He doesn't, some people say, you know, and I haven't heard this for a long time, maybe, hopefully it's been stamped out as a dumb idea, that God needed fellowship and he missed, you know, he just needed somebody outside of himself so he made man. He doesn't need us. He's totally self-sufficient. But he chose to make us, to create us, and in creating us then obviously he loved us the second way we can look at the love of God and to a degree love period is personality now hopefully this won't go so long that you just tune out Um, personality God is a person. He's not a force, just a power. He is an eternal, personal being of infinite power, knowledge, and goodness. As such, as a person, God's nature, revealed in Scripture, is holy love. It's not just holiness, or love alone. It's the two of them combined, but in a logical order of holiness and love. Now, are you completely lost? Or, don't really <laughs> don't care. <clears throat> the holiness of God follows personality in that. Each of us here could say, I Love you. I just first distinguished myself as a person. And I am the subject. I am the one doing the loving. But I establish myself as a distinct person. Distinct from you. And then I say, I love you. God's distinction as a person is the fact that he is holy. It marks him off as distinct, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other. In that capacity, then, he, you have to distinguish yourself as a being first. And then that you as a being reaches out to another being And expresses love for them. I can't express one of the fundamental elements of love, which is self-disclosure, self-communication, until I first establish self. I'm a self. And then I communicate with other distinct selves. Completely lost, or is that... God's holiness then and his love are necessarily wed together in a single nature. God then is holy love. His holiness is his distinction and holiness makes him separate. There is an element to holiness that's separate. His love seeks to disclose himself and communicate himself to other beings, us. Okay? Now, <clears throat> God's holiness and then we'll move on. God's holiness always acts according to love. And his love always seeks to win its object to holiness. Holiness is the ground of likeness and similarity which makes fellowship with God possible. That's why in the Garden of Eden he made Adam and Eve like him. Let us create man in Adam our image and our likeness. The plural our indicates the Trinity. But holiness requires likeness for fellowship. You can't really have fellowship without likeness. God made us in his likeness. Now, he made that likeness conditional. I must continue to respond to his love for me by loving him back. And loving him back is displayed in obedience to his will. It is absurd. It is impossible to claim that I love God while not following his will. That's insane. Many make that claim. I can't tell you the number of people. Well, I love the Lord. I'm not really walking with the Lord, and I, but I love the Lord. No, you don't. It is impossible to love God and pay no regard to His will. That's why He made the, the likeness of our first parents, Adam and Eve, conditional. He made it as easy as possible for them to obey his will by placing in the garden among probably thousands of trees of food. One tree. And he called it the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had no knowledge of good and evil. They'd never experienced it. They they didn't know it. He said, you will... You will know it only by eating of that tree that I set off bounds for you. Just leave that alone. I will count that as acknowledging and following my will. Thus, our fellowship is uninterrupted. So he said, don't touch that. If you do, you'll die. Now, what's back of that? The likeness immediately ceases because God's presence is withdrawn and we die. Where God is, there's life. Where he withdraws, there's instant death. Adam and Eve disobeyed the will of God. He withdrew because holiness will not exist without sameness God withdrew from their hearts they died instantly spiritually in that they were separated from God and the physical dying process began now in the context of the Garden of Eden is where we see God's holiness and his love very clearly. We see his holiness first. That's why God's is holy love. We don't call him love holy. It's holy love. We see his holiness expressed first. Not only by establishing a condition they were to keep, but by immediately separating himself from them when they disobeyed him. And uh, ultimately, we know, he banished them from the garden. Holiness banishing, banishes anything contrary to holiness. And so God in the Garden of Eden banned them established said an angel with a flaming sword turning every way guarding the way to the tree of life and you have god having a conversation among the trinity saying basically what do we do with him and her In this new state they've created for themselves of separation from God, we can't let them eat of the tree of life and live forever. And in many versions of the Bible, it says, lest they reach forth their hand and eat of the tree and live forever. And then there's just a really long, like triple hyphen God doesn't even finish the sentence. It's an unthinkable concept that we let this now fallen, rebel, rebellious creature reach out, eat from the tree of life, and live forever in that condition. So he said, you're out. That's God's holiness. But while they were still in the garden, before he physically sent them off, and put an angel to keep them from coming back in. In Genesis 3, both 15 and 21. In Genesis 3, 15, you find these words. God starts out, he says, Adam, what'd you do? He said, the woman that you gave me. So Adam had two places to go. He can blame God and he can blame his wife. Tells us about the nature of sin. I, I'm not here to preach about sin. But we sure can. From that passage. It tells us all about it. I didn't do it. You did. She did. It's not my fault. We live in that kind of world today. It's everybody else's fault. It's not mine. I didn't do it. I couldn't help it. No responsibility. And God said to Adam, where are you? Well, he's hiding in the brush. What'd you do? It's your fault and her fault. God, in his kindness, you know, he put up with that. Because he, I mean, God's fairly smart. So he didn't need to go through the exercise he did with them. He already knew what they did. But he lets Adam have a go at explaining it. And he blames it on Eve. So then God turns to Eve. And he says, what would you do? And we know that. The devil made me do it. I didn't do it. The serpent deceived me. I couldn't help it. That's what it really means. I was deceived. I, I, you know, I, I... that's sin, which is ultimately desperately self-protective. There's no way I'm going to own up that I did it. Well, the only person he didn't talk to, the other person, is the devil, assuming the form of the serpent. He didn't ask him anything. He just said, he cursed the serpent." But in that, he said, To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Because you deceived her and she then talked her husband into it. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And you will bruise the heel of her seed. And he, the seed of the woman which foreshadows the virgin birth, he will crush your head. That is is a projection of the atonement, the death of Jesus, which is the, the heel being bruised. Yes, he would suffer, but out of that would come the crushing of the head of Satan the defeat of the kingdom of Satan and then God's opening up the door for redemption for being able to do what put us back restore us to likeness everything is about God winning And restoring our likeness to him and our relationship with him. God's love then and his holiness clearly demonstrated right there in the garden. I'm going to suffer for you too. Then in 21 of Genesis 3 it just says and the lord god made coverings of skins and brought them to adam and eve the word the word cover there is the same word for atonement when jesus shed his blood for us he made a covering for sin which allows us to then respond to god's call to us and approach this holy god we're not like anymore but he is able to restore us to likeness now we know they had made their own coverings they made coverings of fig leaves God got rid of those that's why he gave them covering of skin and in the covering of skin there was a death. We don't know what kind of skins, but that meant animals there were slain to provide a blood offering because the penalty for sin is death. Either the sinner dies or a substitute dies. In this case, we don't know what animals, but The Lord killed animals and provided them a true covering. The fake fig leaf that was their own manufacturing is insufficient. That typifies all bootstrap religion, all self-improvement, really, I don't rarely. I don't go into that many bookstores. We haven't got any around here anymore. But when you do, there's a religious section, and I'll go look at them. Most of the religious sections, it's nothing but self-help. It's human self-help. It's self-improvement. This doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we are utterly incapable of. Fixing ourselves. That's why I need a savior. And that's why he, knowing that, paid such a cost to be our savior. There's love. The love of God is always self-divulging. He communicates with us. And here's a good definition of the love of God. It's a theological definition, but it's a good one. The love of God is his desire to impart himself and all good to his creatures and to possess them for spiritual fellowship. Go back to the Trinity. There is a divine communion fellowship among the three persons of the Trinity. God wants the same kind of fellowship flowing both ways with us, those made in His image and likeness. After sin entered by their violation of God's law, something has to be done to restore that or... There is no basis for restoration, no basis for fellowship like God intended to have with us. The definition then of love is not only that God wants to impart, but he also wants to possess. He can't impart to me unless I let him own me. He always treats us as beings that have a free will, that have a choice. Here's the thing we can say. This is amazing to me of God's love. As much as God loves us and wishes to impart to us his very own self, that's why he wants to put his spirit in my heart. That's what it means. He wants to impart himself to us and make us like him. He never compels us to do it. There's a statement, that we've all heard of the scripture, which the more you think about it, it's just mind boggling. Here's the God of the universe. Who spoke the stars into being. And calls them all by their names. We can't comprehend God. Yet he. This God. Says. Look. Behold. In Revelation. Behold. I stand at the door. And I knock. Whoever opens to me, there's choice. Many don't. But whoever opens to me, I will come into him, his house. And I will, the King James Version, I will sup with him. I'll have dinner. We'll we'll sit down and fellowship together. That the God of the universe would stand gentlemanly and politely on the doorstep of a heart closed to him but one he made and keeps alive. And he knocks. And he makes it clear. He will turn away and walk off that porch if I refuse to open the door. Now, we don't have a picture of God with his, he's grieved deeply but he does have a last word everyone who in this life says no to God for all eternity at judgment he says no to them they don't go dwell with him in his place unless we've opened the door to him here There's three elements. i want to just kind of throw this in. God's elements of divine love. One is self-communication. God's love is spontaneous that he reaches out. Um, so is his love implanted in our hearts. There's a second thing about the love of God that I think is extremely important. The love of God does Not depend on the likableness, lovableness of the object that He loves. Okay? How many times do we see Paul said in Romans 5, God commends or shows or reveals his love to us in that he loved us while we were yet sinners? We're rebels. But he loved us. So God doesn't love us because we're lovable. The object of God's love doesn't have to be attractive for him to love it. God, and also, he doesn't love us technically. He doesn't love us because of our worth. The fact that he loves us gives us worth. That's why. I'm getting a little off subject. But if you, you, you know in the scripture, in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you call anyone fool, you'll be in danger of hell fire. Well, you think, well, wait a minute. Paul called, Paul wrote letters to Corinthians and told them they were foolish. And he said they were fools. Well, it, the words are different. But the word Jesus used He said, Don't ever call anyone worthless. That's what the word meant there. You call somebody worthless, he said, You're in danger of hellfire. Don't call your brother or your sister, your fellow human worthless. Nobody's worthless because God loves us. Does that make sense? Why God said, Don't you do that? Nobody's worthless. And to get further off subject, well, not really. That's why God, Jesus, commands us, you love your enemies. Now, that does not mean that we have to want to go fishing with them, nor does it mean that we agree with them. They can be highly wicked and bad people, but we can have the kind of love that once like God, wants their best. God's love is, I want their best. I want to possess them so I can bless them and fix them. That's why he said, if we're going to be like him, he said, you love because your Father in heaven, Sermon on the Mount, loves the thankful and the unthankful and loves the just and the unjust therefore you be perfect like your father he's talking about then loving our enemies praying for those who despitefully use you god still retains anger says he's angry with the wicked every day but he loves them part of the problem we have in our culture today is the continual sinister changing of the definition of words Today, love can only mean affirmation, celebration, giddy, jumping up and down insanity. That's love. Anything less than that, even to disagree, to disapprove, is that's hate. The whole thing's stupid. Every one of us that are parents. And have any streak of decency in us at all. Want what's good for our children. And we're angry with them. When they take action. That damages themselves. That's because we love them. That's where God's wrath comes from. That's why he can say. I'm angry with the wicked every single day. Because they are defeating his best plan for themselves fellowship is this next. Self-communication, the next self communication it doesn't matter the object of God's love third is fellowship that's his, his reason for loving us and his love meant to possess us is to benefit us And to restore us, to redeem us, and to re-liken us to him. Now, how does he display it? His display of love is self-sacrifice. Here's where we come clear around. For God so loved the world. The word so, he so loved the world, then makes that comparison. He so loved us. How do we know how much? He gave his only begotten son. That is the self-sacrifice of love. True love, then, is a perfect balance and a maintained balance. Of self sacrifice. At the same time, there is, how do I know? How did Jesus tell me to know that I'm to love my neighbor? Love your neighbor like you love yourself. We're supposed to love ourselves. Paul said no one hates himself, normal yeah. person but nourishes and cherishes his body and our self. Now, infected with sin, self-love is supremely selfish. And so we love people for what they can do for us. That's why you have the craziness of people. Well, if I can't have you, I'm going to shoot you. Nobody can have you. That is that is. Love infected and turned inward. That's what most of this world calls love. It's actually selfish. And I get, I marry someone. And what I call love is selfish. And I expect to receive. And when I stop receiving by my standard, we call the lawyer. I'm not putting up with this. The love of God empties itself and loves people for what I can do for them, not what they can bring to me. Does that make any sense? God sacrificed himself so that he could redeem us from slavery to sin and restore the lost likeness to him. Therefore we could have fellowship with God. We could be like Him once again. The love of God, we can't plumb its depths. What God did for us who don't deserve it. God's self emptying and self-sacrificing love, but let let me I'll wind this up. Both with God and with us, there has to be self-affirming love and self-sacrificing love. And those two kinds of love have got to be balanced. Self-affirming love, if self-affirmation gets out of kilter with self-sacrificing love, it's selfish. If... What we would call self-surrendering, self-sacrificing love gets out of balance with self-affirming love. It's squishy, weak indulgence. That's what a lot of parents end up doing with children. I just love them too much that I've got to go bail them out for the 40th time. Yeah, I know they had a DUI and racked their car, but I just love him and I got to get him in a... No. That's why nobody today, by the way, understands God. God says, I love you with all my soul and heart. I gave my son, but don't you fool with me. Don't cross me. Is that true? Absolutely. Because God's holy. Don't mess with him. But we have so made God into a, yeah, mid, more than early stages of dementia. He's pretty well there. And you can just go up and kick him in the shins and, well, I just, boy, I I sure love you. Don't do that. You'll find we have a God who's not like we've made him to be he's holy you've got to have a perfect balance and that's what we're called to have in reflecting God's image toward each other we go the second mile we sacrifice yes but we're not we don't we damage the supposed object of our love if we are too self sacrificing to where we don't hold them to account Today, in the gospel, in the churches, many, many, many churches have gone so far into the squishy, syrupy, sentimental, human um, brand of love that we're actually damning people in the name of love. It's a wrong definition of love. Oh, whatever you do, I don't care. I God does. God is holy to the point that the objects of his deepest love, he will keep out of heaven for all of eternity. There's the balance. The love of God then, stated right in the presence of our first parents' rebellion, projects here's how much I love you and I'm going to visit I'm going to come back into this world as one of you understanding you best and I will pay the price that is reflected temporarily in the death of animals when God brought the skins of animals he was giving an illustration of what his only son would eventually do in history. The love of God, then, is a deep subject, but how thankful we are God so loved us. Let's bow our heads. Dan, if you'll dismiss us with prayer.
1: Father in heaven, in the quiet of this sanctuary this morning, it strikes me that to even begin to grasp the level of love that you have for us, we have to see your holiness. Because if we will be like Isaiah when he said, I saw the Lord lifted high and sitting on his throne. If we see that in our own heart, Lord, and we realize the extent that you went to to redeem us, back into a relationship with you because of the sacrifice you made and because of how much you love us, it lands on us heavier, Lord, I think, if we realize your holiness. But yet your love reached out to us through your son. Father, may that land on us this Christmas season. As we look at that baby in a manger and we see the nativity scenes around town, may that be a reminder of the extent that you went to and the sacrifice you made to redeem us because you love us. And Lord, may that rest on us in a manner of you demonstrated your love for us in that sense. How will we demonstrate our love back to you? Will it be through sacrifice exactly like to mimic and to echo what Christ has done for us to sacrifice our lives back to you, to surrender our lives wholly to you this Christmas season? and walk with you and mind you and and be in your likeness as we learned this morning because lord you've given us that choice you told adam and eve one rule do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you tell us one rule if you will on how to be redeemed back into a relationship with you it's not hard lord but we're stubborn and we don't like surrender but if we can look at this message we heard this morning understanding your holiness but that you love us and you, the extent that you went to to redeem us, may that be something, Lord, that gets us to move toward you, to realize one thing we have to do, just one, and that's accept you as our Savior. May that be done in the hearts of our people in this church and this community, in this country, and around the world this Christmas season, that this baby in a manger, this message would not go wasted. May there not be another Christmas season pass by of someone saying, you know what? I'm going to change my life. May this year be different. May this year people respond to the one thing that you've offered us to respond to, and that's Christ and Christ alone. That we may walk with you, be back in your likeness, and be redeemed by you because of the sacrifice you made. May we sacrifice and surrender the same back to you this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.